0: hey folks once again today's program is sponsored by nobody that's right but this week actually it should be sponsored by aris and you've never heard of aris it's a-r-r-i-s i I had never heard of aris either but a week ago my motorola cable modem which i bought at radio shack which i think no longer exists um, went on the fritz, like all of a sudden my internet was in and out and I couldn't do anything. And I was, I was trapped and and, and nothing was working. It was on a Sunday and I looked them up and it turns out that Motorola is now their customer support is being handled by this Aris company or Aris somehow owns Motorola. It doesn't exist anymore. All I know is when I heard the opening, when I dialed the eight, eight, eight number and I heard the opening, I was like, this is going to be bullshit. I'm going to get totally treated terribly. I'm going to get nothing. But instead, the most intelligent-sounding, thoughtful, easy-to- understand woman came on the line. This very smart woman who sounded like she was around the corner, and she walked me through a fairly technical rebooting of my modem, and it worked, and she was nice. I'm a huge fan of Aris right now. So... And again, I'm hoping that like everybody's going to go out and call Eris and go like, oh my gosh, I heard about you guys through Bart's podcast. And they'll call and say, we, we, we really do want to sponsor your podcast. Because again, this is a podcast in search of sponsorship. But since we don't have it yet, let's get on with the show.
1: You're listening to Humanize Me with Bart Campolo. All right. Today
0: on the show... We are interviewing and uh, like, I, I don't know what I'm supposed to say. Cause like Scott Wiltermuth is not my close friend. Like we do not hang out. I have not been to his house. I do not, I have not met his new child, but we've had a number of conversations. I, I get steered over in his direction by another USC professor who said, you're going to love this guy because Scott is a researcher. And what he researches is how socio environmental factors, like how the stuff is going around us affect people 's reactions to unethical behavior to cheating and lying and stuff in the workplace and in, in society how what 's going around affects not only our reaction to other people 's unethical behavior but how it affects our likelihood of behaving unethically ourselves and and so that 's what we end up talking about. We talk a lot about ethics in this conversation and so anyway, I gone and talked to Scott about some other stuff. I had him into the podcast. I forgot to ask him about what I really wanted to ask him about I was I really wanted to ask him about synchrony. And, and this whole idea that when people dance together or when they march together or when they sing together, it affects their, their sense of relationship to each other and their ability to work cooperatively. Like, and he's—I'll get him back to talk about that stuff. But we started talking about ethical stuff, and the conversation just kind of went off all over the place. I don't know if it shows, it'll show up in the edited version, but my favorite part of the podcast was when he told me that the last guy that interviewed him was the actor um, John Turturro. Um, who's been in a lot of really great movies. And he said, I was a way better interviewer and a way better conversationalist than Turturro. And I said, why? And he said, because you're really interested in this stuff. And I am. I'm totally interested in anything that helps us figure out how to live better lives. And so, uh, anyway, I think you're going to like Scott. Like I, I, I feel like we're not yet friends, but we could actually end up friends. And I think when you listen to this, this, this conversation, you'll see why. So without any further ado, let's get on with it. So Scott, yes. here you are. Thanks for coming in. My pleasure. Thanks for coming to talk to me. And and kind of what I like what I wanted to do in this new iteration of the podcast is, is I want to be better at asking people what they're thinking about these days. Okay. Now, you're like
1: a professional thinker. Yes. Do you ever think of yourself as a professional thinker? I do, but less so these days when I'm just talking at people. I saw that I've stacked my teaching. So I'm teaching four days a week from eight to twelve thirty. And so I feel like I'm just a voice at this point. Uh, but in a week, I will feel like a thinker again, I hope. Because this semester will be over. This semester will be over. So, so like, were you teaching all undergrads this semester? Everybody except for undergrads. this Okay, semester. that's what I thought. PhD students, MBA students, exec ed, business professionals, uh, or in some cases, medical doctors who come in. To learn more about business and you know the psychology, business and leadership and that sort of thing.
0: Okay, so you're teaching because somebody might be overhearing us and they might go like, okay, they're talking about business, but right. like you're not a businessman.
1: No, I was once, but I was. Were you really? I was. Yeah. So my first job out of college, I had no idea what I wanted to do, so I just went into investment banking because I thought, well, they make lots of money. That's probably the route to have. Oh,
0: I remember you telling me this. Yeah.
1: yeah. But that was a really poor fit, and, and I knew it in about six weeks. Uh, as did the company and I lasted 14 months and then went from there to, uh, airline strategy, working for us airways and getting to travel the world. And then over time, I just spent a lot of time thinking about what really intrigues me and it's how people think, uh, how they make decisions, what leads us to behave unethically or ethically, and so I found my way eventually into academia.
0: So you started doing business kind of stuff, like U.S. Airy stuff and everything, yeah. and you're interested in the why people do what they do.
1: Exactly. So for me, the most interesting part of that uh, job, aside from the people who were fantastic, uh, was thinking about, okay, well, why would people want to travel from Providence, Rhode Island, to Denver, like what sort of links would there be between these two cities? Unfortunately, that's a pretty small part of the job because you have a whole set of numbers and they tell you like, well, it doesn't matter why they're doing it. Just, this is the number of people yeah. doing it. So move on.
0: But, but eventually like you were like, I want to know why people do what they do. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: If you're at a cocktail party and somebody yeah. says, what do you study? How do yeah. you like, you
1: don't say business, do you? I say the psychology of business, The
0: psychology of
1: business, which probably makes them think that I'm a therapist, but I'd be a terrible therapist. I'd be like the least sympathetic um maybe not the least sympathetic but i'd be
0: you're more so of a pathologist like you're tra- like
1: what's going on there yeah. why are people doing that right exactly like if we're making the wrong decisions if we're making decisions that don't lead to long-term happiness why are we doing this so that we can do things and, and take sort of engineer yeah. companies or engineer social environments, s-
0: environments to make to make people like and if you said if somebody said to you like
1: What's your goal? Like, I want to engineer social environments to make people be good. Yeah, that is a pretty strong goal, uh, actually. For me, curiosity drives a lot of this. Uh, and just as I think there are people who are probably better qualified to be therapists, I think there are people who are better qualified to implement the or maybe even engineer some of the social... To do policy. Yeah, to do policy, exactly. Because there are people who get really enthused about that, and I'm... St- super happy that those people are out there. I just want to learn. Basically, if I could design my perfect world, I would study things that would lead to a a set of recommendations to make the world a better place. And then somebody would read those recommendations in the journals uh, where about 20 people probably read our work and and then take those and make big changes. Okay, but this is your big chance because at least 20 people are (laughs) listening to this conversation. So what have you been studying lately? Okay, so... Lately, I've been studying a lot about guilt proneness and people's dispositional tendency to feel guilty about things. And we really vary on this. There are people walking around who just feel guilty about every social interaction, everything that they're not doing to save the environment, everything that they are doing to some other social group. Uh, and then there are other people like, I'm not thinking about you. I don't care how my actions affect you. And so uh, with a collaborator, Taya Cohen at Carnegie Mellon University, we've looked at, whether this guilt proneness affects how likely people are to start forming partnerships so the idea is if if you're like like business partnerships business or, partners. or like social partnerships so business partnerships okay. is, is where we've looked first uh, but i can imagine the same thing being true with social partnerships imagine that we're in the same field and i am really really guilt prone i worry about the impact of my actions on other people it's just a core thing that guides my behavior and I really respect what you're doing and I think wow you're You're so good at what you're doing and I have some doubts about my own competence am I going to approach you with a business idea well from the standpoint of you having uh, really good ideas yeah you'd think so like that this would be great people can come together and work on the best ideas Um, so that should be wonderful But what we found is that the guilt-prone people won't do that. And the reason that they won't do that is they're so afraid of letting that other person down. It's only when they have this strong sense of confidence in their own capabilities uh, that they're willing to push aside that worry about letting the other person down to form a partnership. Wow, so like I feel guilty
0: even walking in the
1: door like, I might let you down, so we better not partner up at all. Absolutely, and so they'd rather work on things alone because there's no possibility of letting other people down. So it's the sociopaths that don't feel feel no guilt, they're like, let's work together. Right, so that's the extreme, but I think a lot of people, um, when we think about Free ridership. So if you're in a group of people, sometimes not everybody's pulling their weight. They're the free rider freeloaders or uh, the free riders. And it's a problem that all sorts of social sciences have been trying to figure out what we're finding is that those guilt prone people. Uh, are more okay with free riders because they feel these obligations to other people, and
0: well, and they just feel like a debt of I, I probably ought to let them do this. I, I've done so much wrong right. in my this,
1: life. This research is is with a key, uh, a student here. It's really preliminary, but the um, what I was going to get back to is that the people who are really guilt prone absolutely no comfort in being the free rider themselves so they'll take themselves out of this and so it's not just psychopaths that are willing to like form these partnerships most of us are where we think like well it's a risk people are taking in working with me i take a risk in working with them we all have our strengths and weaknesses so it actually may be maladaptive uh for the perspective of the guilt-prone individual because they're missing some wonderful opportunities i mean we all know people that are like Apologize for everything. Yeah, absolutely. You know, like you know, you, you
0: stub your toe, and they're like, "Oh, I'm sorry that I, I put in that carpet." Right, you know, exactly. like, and you're just like, "It's not your fault." Stop. Right. And you do get the sense that these people miss
1: out. They do. Yeah. On absolutely. life. On the other hand, they're doing a, a tremendous favor uh, too, because there are probably instances where the guilt-prone person really isn't as competent as you are in, in this domain, and so. They won't form that partnership and bring you down, or they won't join a group where they think they're going to bring harm to the group. Of course, this has some implications for how much learning goes on, too, because if you're really guilt-prone and there's, you're worried about having to say sorry, and you're likely to say sorry to every time, everyone every time you let them down, well, how do you get yourself in those social circles where you're going to be learning from the really competent, good people? And that's one of the ideas. That we want to explore going forward.
0: Yeah, it's so funny because I've worked a lot around helping professions. Okay. I realize like, there are a lot of guilt-prone people in helping professions. And that may be why they go to helping professions because, like, I'm going to be working with people who are below me. Right. And so I'm probably not going to
1: let them down. Right. or, Or drag them back. And so that's so weird. Absolutely. I just heard some really interesting research, not my own, and I don't even remember the author's names, uh, unfortunately. But they looked at people in compassionate industries, helping industries. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And what they found is that these people can be so drained and just cognitively depleted by helping the people they're supposed to help that a lot of their interactions with their coworkers are worse than you would find in for-profit Businesses um, because they just have to exert so much self control when they're dealing with these, these sensitive populations that in their other interpersonal interactions, it's just their drain.
0: Yeah, so they don't have anything to give. Exactly. Well, yeah, and, and you know, if you know people in those worlds, they'll tell you that, like, a lot of times as people are burning out, like, like their bosses are hard on them. And like, you would think like, we're all supposed to be here to help people. Shouldn't we all be really nice people? Right. And we're like, we are really nice to them. Yes. Exactly. We're horrible to each other. Right. Uh,
1: and it's hard to find, <laughs> find fault with that. So on this guilt stuff, like what's a, like, how do you study guilt? Like how would you, sure. like, what's a study that you would do? Okay so we had people so somebody's developed take and uh and june tangy have each developed questionnaires where it asks you questions like if you're let's say you're at a friend's party and you spill some red wine nobody sees it uh what's the likelihood that you'd feel bad about it um or there's a situation where you uh you commit a, a crime and but nobody sees it there's, there's really no Direct victim. Um, what's the likelihood that you'd feel bad about that? So that's getting at guilt, and then there are more public situations uh, where you do something, other people do notice, and that's that's really the emotion of shame. Uh, and guilt and shame. Well, we kind of use these we use these words almost interchangeably in everyday parlance. They are distinct in that guilt leads to a set of behaviors that, yeah, it's about the self. Guilt's internal? Guilt's internal, yeah. And shame is like, I'm worried what you think of me. Yeah, that's said really well. Exactly. Oh, wow. Exactly. And they lead to different behavioral uh, tendency. Guilt leads to repair. So I want to fix the situation. I feel guilty. I brought you down. What can I do to make this up to you? Shame leads to social withdrawal. I want to hide. That's it. Yep, that's it, exactly. So we have these questions that get at how much they feel guilt, how much they feel shame, and most of our effects are strongest in terms of guilt. But if if you look only at shame and take guilt out of the equation, shame can predict some of these uh, behavior patterns as well. So we have them fill out a questionnaire. We have them do some activities that just sort of distract them, like, look over here, look over here, there. Um, just get their mind off of that sort of thing. And then we have them do this origami task, like folding paper to make... Uh, these origami hearts and we have them work uh, with somebody and and they um, so they meet the person they interact for a little bit then they go to separate rooms and they're told that they get paid based on first they have a practice period to see how many of these origami hearts they can make by themselves in a period of 10 minutes some people are really good almost no one's really good but um, every once in a while get somebody who's just fantastic but most people kind of struggle with it because it's a hard task it's not like Origami is one of college students' chief hobbies these days, so it's a hard task. Um, We give them false feedback about how their partner did. So uh, we generally tell them, like, oh, you got three? That's great. Your partner uh, made seven. Please choose one of these payment plans for this next 10 minutes. Uh, Period. We'll actually pay you based on how much either you or you and your partner make. If you choose you and your partner, it'll be an average sort of thing. So if you make three and and she makes seven, uh, we'll pay you for five. Um, Which do you choose? And the people who aren't so guilt-prone say, yes, let's see that five option. I want more money. Uh, And it doesn't matter to them so much that the partner is going to learn – earn less money in that scenario but the people who are guilt prone say no 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 let's just each be paid on our own output i don't want to have to worry about this other person so like are more people like
0: like are more of us prone to guilt or are more of us prone to like selfishness and more of us are prone to selfishness
1: really yeah Uh, yeah it's not huge amounts of money so maybe if we were to increase the stakes people would get more uncomfortable but with then, this, but yeah, uh, mo- most people are like, yeah, well, why wouldn't I? This is an echo- like, I'm in a business school. And that's the other thing to keep in mind. We have business students. Um, oh, is that who you're that doing come- these tests yeah, on? Yeah, exactly. A bunch of sharks. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it would be interesting to see what I'd, happens. In a I'd love to take part. it over to the social work. Right. Exactly. School and see what they think. Yeah. I bet. I bet you would see a much lower rate of, you know, partnership. Yeah. Formation yeah.
0: Yeah. Does it matter how well they know the other person? Like if you let them hang out a little bit longer, are they less prone to screw them?
1: Yeah, that was our, that was one of our hypotheses. We didn't find as strong of evidence uh, for that as uh, I would have liked. So we asked, (laughs) asked (laughs) it's like your close friends. And like, I thought, okay, if it's their close friend, maybe they're going to be thinking more about that person just as you speculated. But I think there's a countervailing psychology of like, well, my close friend will understand. They'll be tolerant of this sort of uh, behavior. So it doesn't look very different from the conditions where it's just a classmate. Yeah, it's a little bit of a bummer. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, it's like you're studying, so this is the kind of thing you're doing. You're sort of studying how people react, how people work in the real world. Yeah, exactly. But in, in pretty controlled settings, and there's a downside to that, too. These controlled settings means that I'm not really out in real companies very often, you know, distributing surveys and, and monitoring actual behavior. Uh, and it's a trade-off tradeoff uh, that I make for the sake of control so I can look at what causes what.
0: Have you ever heard of a tool, Gowande? No, I haven't. Okay, Atul Gawande is, is a is a surgeon. Okay, um, Harvard surgeon. He wrote like when he was. Learning to be a surgeon, he wrote a book called *Complication*, which is about the process of learning to be a surgeon. Oh. Which is that like you're not a very good surgeon, and the only way to get good is practice. Is to practice, and nobody wants you to practice on them. They all want the good surgeon. Sure, but you can't get. And so it was all about like how you develop the intuitions and understanding of a surgeon. But he's just like he's a great writer, but he's also a brilliant dude. So then he wrote this book. His most recent book is called *Mortality*, and okay. it's about the decision managed care, aging facilities, Mm -hmm. the the conversations that we do or don't have with our families about aging. But the one in the middle was called the Checklist Manifesto. Okay. And in it, one of the things he was trying to do was, as a surgeon, he was trying to figure out how in third world countries and 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 in war zones, how you could cut down the number of surgical mistakes. And it turns out surgeons are, like, really arrogant people. They think they know what they're doing. So they didn't want to do checklists. But he found that, like, in airplane cockpits, checklists work. Construction sites, checklists work. And so he ended up coming up with this whole checklist thing to do in surgery. But here's the thing that was interesting to me was they would come up with very simple stuff like wash your hands. And then they tried to figure out how to motivate people to wash their hands. And in one of the studies somebody did, they put up a sign that said – Washing your hands reduces your chance of getting sick, and it didn't affect behavior very much. But then they put up a, di- a different sign that said, "Washing your hands cuts down on the number of our patients who will die of infection." And then people did wash; yeah. like they were more prone to wash their hands for other people right. rather than looking out for their own health.
1: Does that strike you as strange, or are you like? I love it. It's encur- it strikes me as encouraging. Uh, that people have this level of concern for others that we sometimes over or underestimate Dale Miller, uh, who's a social psychologist at Stanford's business school has this beautiful paper called paper called the norm of self interest. And the idea is that we perpetuate this idea that people are just interested in themselves. And even when we're doing something that really is driven by a motive of helping other people, when we're explaining it to other people, we feel compelled to. Frame it in terms of language that makes it appear self-interested because we don't want to be this morally self-righteous do-gooder, and so we're perpetuating uh, the idea that we're only driven by. The people
0: are actually they're, they're like afraid to tell you that I just did this to be a good person. Exactly. Yeah. Oh,
1: wow. So there's pushback uh, there, and some of the language that we use is is focused on the benefits uh, for the for themselves. And this is like so this is the worst possible considerable of of the field of economics. But the caricature of economics that people make fun of is thinking that we only do things ever for profit but like okay well but if that's the case why are we having children why do we have social welfare states is it is it all just to improve our individual uh well-being that lots of unanswered questions to its credit economics is not that caricature right. uh, that it's made out uh to be but yeah i, I find that the iron my- yeah iron is not the driving force of everything right exactly there are a few interesting studies looking at people's willingness to be swayed by other people's uh, outcomes. One of my own studies, uh, one of my studies that I like the most out of all the studies I've done, has looked at unethical behavior in other people. And so in one of the experiments, I have and I have them solve these sets of word jumbles. Um, and they'd have to unscramble them to form proper words. And I, I'll pay them for every Proper word that they unscramble. So um, they were a little more difficult than this, but the first one might be IPG. What word can you spell using the letters I, P, and G? And of course, the answer is pig. Few of them were pretty easy. Number one's really easy. Number two's really easy. Number three is devastatingly hard. No one, like one person out of two thousand people, has legitimately got this one. Four is reasonably easy. Five's a little harder. But any, in any case, they can make a lot of money. Uh, by solving these word jumbles in one condition, um, I tell people for every word jumble, you unscramble successfully. I'm going to give you $2, uh, and to college students, this is, is real money. If you could if you look at this list and you see, look, I can solve, uh, one through eight or at least one, two, three, five, four, five, six, seven, eight. And it's taking, I'm going to get a meal. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in another condition, I tell them that they can get $1. Uh, per anagram we just want to see if it's like big incentives little incentives does it does it really matter and one thing i should say at this point is that they just have to report which ones they solve they don't actually have to give me the, the they have GPA. to prove that they, they don't they have did to it. prove it exactly they can just say that they did. i got eight yeah exactly right uh and i'd ask which ones and they'd say one two three four five six seven eight so um in another condition uh they got a dollar and we would uh send a, a a dollar to one of their friends through like an Amazon.com gift uh, certificate. Uh, another condition, they'd get a dollar and someone they'd never even meet, another participant from an experiment, they wouldn't learn the identity. Total stranger. Of the person. Yeah. yeah, that person would also get a dollar. And in the last condition, they wouldn't actually earn any money themselves, but that total stranger would get $2. And the big trick in this experiment is that number three. Uh, are you going so, yeah, to lie about that? Are you going to lie about that? Because the only word that it can be unscrambled to sp- spell is Tagwan. And Tagwan is a species of flying squirrel that is native to the East Indies and nowhere else. And no one knows it's even a word. No one knows, knows word. it, except for one woman who watched an animal planet show the <laughs> night before. So no one knows it's a word. And so we just look at how how likely are you to lie about that third one. Well, In the uh, self-interest conditions, both the high and the low, uh, so $2 per anagram or $1 per anagram, about 20% of people said, yep, I solved that one. Yeah. Okay, that's a little bit depressing that it's 20% of uh, people. In the self and friend condition, it was almost 40%. So when you get a dollar and your friend gets a dollar, that's 40%. But when you get $2 and there's no mention made of the friend, that's 20%. So I'll lie for you. Yeah, I'll lie for somebody else. But we have this other condition, looking at whether they are lie for somebody they we, don't even Well, I know. lie for a
0: total stranger.
1: It's almost the same as the self and friend condition. So uh, I have more than 35% of people in that condition cheated. I'm like, okay, wow, people are being really nice. They're cheating for their friends. They're cheating for this person they don't even know. Is this all about helping other people? There we turn to that last condition where the other person gets $2 and you don't personally get any monetary benefit. That's the lowest rate of cheating. That's like 15%. So it's not just that people want to help. They want psychological cover, camouflage for their own motives. So we'll cheat. Oh, my gosh. So, like, I'm going to tell myself that I'm doing this.
0: To help you. Exactly. But it's really so I can get the buck. Exactly. Yeah. If you don't oh, and when I buck, don't I'm get anything, yeah. I'm not I don't really care about you at all. Exactly. Oh my gosh.
1: Yeah, it's a little sad. So and the implication of this, this is, is terrible, Scott. Like are you are you depressed all the time? <laughs> um, like about about the human condition? No, because I've, it's, I've, I will force myself to think about the sixty percent or the eighty percent, depending on the condition, who did the right thing and who didn't lie about this sort of thing. And then I think, well, who's the victim here? Me? Yeah, I'm a victim. My research account is depleted a a little bit. But I'm at the University of Southern California, and clearly there are resources for this sort of thing. And this is what you're supposed to be learning. And this is what I'm supposed to be learning. So in some ways, they're helping the experiment along, too. Wow. Um, But it does, yeah, it can get pretty depressing to see people so willing to cheat and the little tricks that we'll use. The little mental tricks that we yeah. used to,
0: to get ourselves to do it.
1: Exactly. So the way I look at morality, and I'm not, I'm just following on the coattails of lots of other social scientists is we have this balancing act between balancing our need to see ourselves as good people, and then our want to get stuff, like whether that's material stuff or status or liking or affection, and it, it it's just a fact that. If you are willing to take shortcuts, given we can't monitor everything, um, you know sometimes that's going to work toward your benefit.
0: Do you know why that is, that we need to think of ourselves as good people?
1: Um, it's a great question. So I've read a fair amount of evolutionary psychology uh, on this question. And one of the, the more compelling explanations I've heard is that we have this sociometer or sociometer that Looks at groups liking uh, for us, and if we're uh, if we're not seeing ourselves as a good person, we're not going to see the group, our social group, is liking us. Today's society, we may well be able to survive that. We might be depressed because we don't have a lot of social connections. But in except. a hunter gatherer tribe, I need you all to like me. Exactly, I am in constant fear of being ostracized. And so the only way zero. I can
0: I can overcome my fear of being ostracized for being a bad person is feeling like. I am a good person, so I'm not likely to be ostracized. Exactly. Yeah. So I think it's a coping oh my mechanism gosh. from that perspective. So theoretically, if you are the closer knit the group you're a part of, the great and the more you fear being ostracized from that group, the more you're going to need to see yourself as a good person. Yeah, I, th- I think that's true. And and that's a healthy evolutionary trait, right? You're yeah. like, I like it. It's, it's, impo- it's good for us
1: exactly. that people need to see themselves as good people. Oh, it's very good for us. Otherwise we'd have these competitions for like, I have to imagine the competition for mates would look very different uh, than it does today. The competition for jobs, for status, all sorts of things, I think would take a much nastier, more competitive tone if we didn't have this a need. need to see ourselves positively maybe one
0: form of sociopathy
1: is when you don't
0: feel that need. Absolutely. You don't care what anyone else thinks of you. You're not fearful of being
1: ostracized and therefore you have no need to modify your behavior. Exactly. And then that becomes really dangerous when they can recognize what empathy looks like in other individuals and feign it. Cause that's, that's a very useful skill to have. You're not going to get ahead in today's workplace. If, in very many workplaces, if you can't feign some level of emotion, because people people won't feel that social connection, they won't go to bat for you.
0: Okay, let me ask you a pop culture question.
1: Sure. Like you study all the stuff about
0: what really drives people, uh-huh. and is there any like or, is there any movie that you've seen or, or or that you go like that's what I'm talking about? Like that they illustrated. This thing that I see. Do you ever see anything and go like that's it? So
1: back, it's I'm going to date myself a little bit. When I was in grad school, uh, there was a group of people, mostly the professors, with some of the grad students, who were just enthralled by Survivor and the alliance formation. Oh, the so, TV yeah, show, yeah, the right. TV show Survivor. These days, I don't know. Do you do you have one in mind? That- well,
0: no, what's interesting is like I saw this movie uh, last year called um, Nightcrawler. Okay. Um. It's, oh, no, it's a great movie. Really? And especially if you're an L.A. person, it's okay. a great movie because it's set here. Uh-huh. Uh, and it sort of shows L.A. in a weird way. But it, the guy, I always mispronounce his name, Jake Gillenhall. Yeah. Um, he plays this sociopath who gets involved with being a stringer for news outlets, like going around and getting footage of accidents and things like that and then selling it to local news stations. Okay. And it's a very competitive business. And he's just... Like you really see somebody who does – he doesn't – he's not like a sociopath in the sense of like he enjoys killing people or hurting people. Right. He just doesn't Doesn't care. care. Right. And it's a chilling portrait of somebody who – he even manipulates a woman into like having an affair with him and he openly does it. And she's like, doesn't it bother you that like I don't want to do this but you're forcing me to – like you've manipulated me so that I have to do it to keep my job. And he's like, you know, I don't really care. Uh, So it's a real creep. So, so, you know, and I wondered, like, that was a portrait for me of somebody who
1: doesn't care about what other people think. Right. I think it's I think it's much, much less common for people to actually get joy out of doing bad stuff. Yeah. Um, But there's this uh, pretty recent study looking at the number of sociopaths in society. And they found that in society at large, it's about one percent of the people who have this mindset. Like we may not be able to tell because right. they, if they're socially skilled actors, that's a lot of people. That, when you that's really a lot think of about people, it, gets it, more disturbing when you look at um, top levels of management in organizations.
0: Oh yeah, that, right.
1: They, uh, they they score way high. Way high. Yeah, they're like four times the number. So it's four percent. Well,
0: and, and again, like I saw that Steve Jobs movie. Yeah. Megalomania. And I, I mean, I read that book too. The, I don't. I didn't think the movie did nearly as good a job. But mm-hmm. like, there was a clear sense in which his amount of caring about what other people thought was
1: really small. Yeah. Yep. It's. I. I it would be useful at times. Yeah. Uh, it would definitely be useful at times. I have friends who are so concerned about what other people think and making sure that they're hurting other people's feelings that I, I do believe that they're, they're holding themselves back.
0: And, and what's funny is like, when you talk about the CEO thing, like, I, you know, you teach at USC, right? And when I look at the USC business school, I see the stereotype of that place is like you have a lot of right, strivers, strivers, that these are not people that are deeply concerned about the welfare of other people.
1: That, that's the, that's that's the stereotype. stereotype. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't know if you're, if you found that to be true in your own life. Um, part of it is that I've, I've been in business schools for so many years of either. So I studied economics as an undergrad. Uh, And then I've been in business schools. So you worked on work. This has become uh, my universe. But when I did my first job in investment banking, that was an even stronger stereotype about investment bankers than anybody else. But what I found is, yes, these people are linked by their desire to make vast amounts of money. But they're not nearly as one dimensional as people think they are. But uh, the
0: other thing is, like, I don't know that they were necessarily inherently less caring when they got in there. Oh, yeah, yeah, But yeah, I watched yeah. these students here go off to work for these big five companies right, and right, things right. like that. And the culture is it's so like, yeah. inhumane yeah. That, I, that I always say to them, like, I don't want to know who you are right now. I want to know, like, look at the people that are 10 years in. Yeah. Is that who you want to be? Yeah. Because this setting, this, this – It fosters
1: that. Yeah. It fosters that. It is scary. Um, even in terms of number of hours worked – like just changing the equation where i taught a case involving a single mother to uh my mba classes this past week and this single mother needs to leave at, you know, 6 o'clock or 7 o'clock to pick up kids, can't stay late to work. And uh, she totally gets penalized for that. She totally gets penalized for that. But it's, I mean, it's, it's a sticky situation because, like, okay, say you're the other four members on the team and you are expected to work uh, at 9.30 and until 9.30 or 10 o'clock. And you've made the lifestyle choice not to have kids. Or maybe you can't have kids because, you know, pick your favorite reason for uh, or because you're such why a horrible should, person that nobody wants to marry you. Well, it could be that. <laughs> but why should you have to work these extra hours? And it becomes really complicated. But the thing that really struck me was like, yep, this is life. You, you're going to have to work till 9 o'clock a lot, of not, a lot of times. And it started me thinking about like, well, why? Why do we have this norm? I can understand. Well, and we didn't used to. We didn't used to have this No, and, and other countries still don't. Right. In other And that's the thing. Like,
0: I guess, and this is where I'll, I'll wrap it up with you because I don't want to wear you out because my thought when you tell that story is yeah the company should just shut the sucker down at six o'clock and if you don't have a family to take care of and stuff like that you can go climb mountains or go volunteer at the local food bank or like play video games yeah i don't care what you do but like we're going to design this company around people having a life you know that's moral company design right right but in a competitive environment like they're like the first company that decides like well screw that like our, our, we'll have all our people work longer. It's like steroids in sports. Like once one person uses it, then it's like everybody has to use yeah, exactly. it.
1: Exactly. And nobody's really getting ahead.
0: In humanity, it feels to me like it's like the steroid of business.
1: Yep. It's a danger. And so, I think you're right that there are forces. But getting back to the Marshall students, I think there's... There's probably an overestimation of how selfish these students are. Sometimes it's parental pressure, like you really should study something practical, son or daughter. Oh,
0: and, I think a lot of, like but that's the thing, like I think parent I mean I meet talk to these students and the amount of pressure they're under, you know, the amount of times they're hit the counseling center, suicidal yeah. ideation, all this stuff. Yeah. They're under so much pressure. Absolutely. But that's the weird thing, is like social pressure can make you selfish. Absolutely. Like if your society tells you like I really don't want you to care about other people. I really want you to care about getting ahead. Yep. They can, they can beat that stuff out of you.
1: If you think about where we live, we live in Los Angeles. This is not an inexpensive city in which to uh, live. And so you start to think, well, if I want to be near my family, I have to make lots of money, and therefore I'm going to have to work lots of hours, and I'm going to have to prioritize yeah. this. And yeah. So here's my,
0: here's my question for you, my sort of wrap-up question. As you're studying all this stuff about what it is that causes people to act ethically, or that doesn't cause people to act ethically, compassionately, any of those words. Do you end up thinking that as a a society, we should be trying to make people more empathetic on the one hand, or we can engineer situations where since we know people aren't gonna be compassionate, we put in rules and fix things so that they can't cheat, or like we try to stop cheating. So do you try to make people less prone to cheat, or do you try to create situations that
1: guard against people's natural cheatiness? I So I've been more focused on, on creating these uh, situations than modifying their moral character. I think the best approach would be to target both, have some people really looking at moral education and how, how do we get people to prioritize being a good person, valuing dignity and character and, courage, bravery, compassion, whatever your favorite moral value is. But then at the same time, realizing that people are engaging in this little balancing act between getting what they want and being a good person and make it make systems or situations such that they there isn't that opportunity. Temptation. Yeah, or temptation uh, to cheat. Or
0: yeah, I had a friend who used to lock, he used to say I'm not going to leave anything valuable in my car because I want to Keep an honest man, honest, you know, like I I don't want to tempt somebody to to make the the reward of doing something wrong so high that they're more prone to do it. So your, your sense is somebody out there should be working on trying to figure out how to make people better people.
1: Oh, absolutely. And we know that we know a lot of the things that are, are great for that. Having actively involved parents who are loving and fostering secure forms of attachment with their children can do great things in terms of subsequent moral behavior and a lack of yeah being a part of community
0: being a part of a religious community or being part of a secular religious community like a community of people that are connected around a value system absolutely you know it's funny because like it isn't the it isn't the supernatural stuff that tends to make religious community people act better it's meeting together it's reaffirming values on a weekly basis it's you know ritual and all the stuff So, wow. So in your own life, has it caused you to change anything about the way you live your life?
1: That's a great question. I think I'll beat myself up more over uh, uh, falling victim to moral temptations more than I would. Otherwise, I think it's... You're more aware of it. And uh, I think it's probably made me a little better at perspective taking. And just getting into other people's heads and thinking about, okay, how are they seeing this situation? Why are they behaving so radically different? It's definitely changed the way I look at uh, politics on the other side of the political aisle, getting a little more understanding of people with you know extreme conservative views, for example, or even those with more extreme. Yeah. Did, liberal you, views. did
0: you read Jonathan Haidt's book, uh, *The Righteous Mind*? I did. Yes. Yeah. Th- I mean, that's that
1: kind of thing. Like, you become more sensitive to like. People make these decisions for reasons. Actually, I just lied. I read the happiness hypothesis. I haven't read uh, the. I've read parts of the righteous mind, not the whole thing, but I've read so much of John's work um, outside of it.
0: The idea of like well. we like the elephant and the rider yeah, and all that yeah. stuff, yeah. Because I think that that's probably the, the most helpful book, especially for me. Some sort of coming out of Christianity, I'm, I'm often talking with people on opposite sides of the faith divide. Sure. And they really, they really can't understand how a good person would see the other side. Could see it the way the other side does, and you sort of go like, "Yeah, having been on both sides, I know that like my core motivations didn't change at all. Right, right. My core values stayed the same. Right. It's you know, and so it is really interesting to realize like we're not rational beings. We're We're rationalizing beings. Exactly. We were talking about renaming this podcast, and I think sometimes people like the like the rational. A rational um, man, and I'm like, if there's one thing, I'm never, gonna, <laughs> I'm never gonna claim again, it's that I'm a rational actor. Yeah, fair enough. Hey, thanks so much for coming by and talking with me. Nice. This has been really great. Thank you. All right, we'll talk. We'll talk more later. Okay, thank you. I hope you liked that conversation. I got more coming at you, and we'll even figure out a way to get my phone to stop dinging when we're talking. All right, talk to you soon. Bye. For more information about the work of Barcampolo, Campolo, please visit barcampolo.org.